jumping into week three of our study in Genesis. So we're still right on the first couple pages of your Bible. I hope you brought one today. If you did, open it up right to the beginning, uh, the first book of your Bible, the first couple pages, chapter two. Uh, This is week three, but we're starting chapter two today. Those numbers are really helpful for navigating like on a Sunday morning when we're in this kind of context, or if you're pulling it up on your phone, you can kind of like search Genesis and then you can click the number two. But here's what you need to remember. Keep in mind that those numbers aren't like the inspired Word of God. Those numbers are actually just helpful tools. They were added later on. So even though we're starting chapter 2 today, what we're really doing is concluding the first section of Genesis, which sort of was introduced in the first two verses of Genesis chapter 1. And then the body of work really happened in verses 3 through verse 31 of chapter 1 with the six days of creation. And then now in chapter 2, the first three verses, we're finding sort of a conclusion to this first chunk of Scripture right at the beginning. And so uh, we are finding ourselves at the end of this first piece, but at the beginning of the book of Genesis as a whole, which over the next year we'll be studying. Uh, Genesis usually is divided into two big sections. You've got the first section uh, through chapter 11, which really covers creation uh, and then the fall of man when sin is introduced by mankind into the world. Then you've got the fallout from what happens after the fall uh, up until the time that God establishes a covenant relationship with one man and his family, Abraham. And so from chapter 12 forward all the way through chapter 50, we see that covenant relationship being developed. And so we're at the beginning of the end of the, or the end of the beginning of the first section. We're still at the beginning of the book of Genesis. And ultimately, we're really at the beginning of the Bible as a whole, because Genesis acts as a, an introduction of sorts to who God is, how God relates to the world, and what our place in this whole relationship is, which will go from really good at the beginning to bad to worse until God remakes it new again and it becomes perfect and glorified and fully sanctified. So we are in this process. Uh, we have a Redeemer in Jesus Christ that the Bible tells us about. Genesis points to the Redeemer, Jesus, who ultimately will come and reign as king over all things and restore creation to the way God intended it to be. So we look forward to that day. But that's kind of the big picture context of why we're looking at Genesis and where we are, even though in the first couple pages of the Bible, they are vitally important for how we understand the whole thing. Genesis 1 and 2 really set the tone for the whole thing, the whole tone and the aim of the entire Bible. So look with me in Genesis chapter 2. We'll just jump right in reading verses 1 through 3. Genesis chapter 2. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. Why would we separate day seven from the first six days? As we, we should have just covered it all, all seven days, right, last week. Well, there's some kind of indicators 
in the text of Scripture that help us see that day seven can kind of be treated as a different experience from days one through six, like that God had completed something in days one through six, and day seven sort of functions in a different way, having a different purpose. Well, we've known from the last couple of weeks that Genesis is a way that we learn about history, uh, but it also, and maybe even more primarily, is a way that we learn about God, who God is how he relates to the world, what his character is, uh, how, the nature of his existence. And so we're learning theology from Genesis chapter 1, which is exactly what, the, what God intended for the Israelites to see because the Israelites weren't necessarily worried about um, what we would probably consider like modern scientific objections to creation. In fact, like things like evolution, the Israelites had never heard of that. What they did encounter is like paganism and mythology, and people who, who had other stories about creation other than the one they believed. And so Genesis was given by God to the Israelite people and to all of his people as a way to teach them about who he is and what is real, what is true. And so they are learning about God, and we are too. So what do we learn about God from the first three verses of chapter 2? The first thing we see is that God's rest is a picture of his reign. God's rest is a picture of his reign. Now, this word rest, a lot of you see this. We, Darren, you read this earlier, and I was thinking, like, oh, rest. We sang, I will rest in your promise. We've been talking about rest all morning. I wonder, do you feel rested today? Like, just some head shakes. I've been talking to someone this morning who said they, they, uh, the parent kept their college kid out too late last night. Uh, I think that was maybe one of my favorite little things I just heard. I didn't even acknowledge it. I just heard it. Uh, It was great. Uh, Most of us operate on very little rest. And when we hear about rest, we think, oh, man, I could sure use some rest. But it seems elusive. It seems out there like, where can we get this kind of rest that God speaks of. We think of rest as like a collapse from exhaustion, like at the end of my week when I've just given all I can possibly give, that I just have to fall into my bed and just hope no one wakes me up uh, for the next several hours, right? Uh, We think of rest uh, sometimes as a sign of weakness, like, well, I'm just going to keep going because if I stop, then people will think I'm not good enough or I'm not strong enough, and so we tend to avoid rest as a culture. Well, The Hebrew people thought about rest in a completely different way. So the word here in Genesis chapter 2 for rest is the Hebrew word Shabbat, which you would be more familiar with our English word Sabbath. You may have heard about Sabbath, a day of rest that probably if you've been around church very much, you've heard about Sunday being the Christian Sabbath that we worship together, that we take time off of work. If you're old enough, you remember the blue laws where people would not even be able to open businesses on a Sunday in observance of the Christian Sabbath. Things have changed quite a bit since then, right? Uh, uh, If you still want just a glimpse of Sabbath, um, I can just recommend Marshall, Texas, downtown on a Sunday morning at 5 a.m., uh, it's, a, it's like maybe the best picture of s- true Sabbath rest for a community because there is nobody. And so you're going to get a little alone time. But if I start seeing you out there, then, you know, you're kind of encroaching on my Sabbath. But no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you're not. I love spending Sabbath with, with you guys. So we have a different idea about Sabbath than the Hebrew people. 
they didn't think of Sabbath rest as being something you do to recover from exhaustion or something that you do when you're tired. In fact, this word just simply means to stop, to cease. Three times in these first three verses, it's alluded in some form or fashion that God stopped his work of creation. The seventh day that everything was complete and he had stopped creating. So like someone sitting on their front porch with a nice glass of sweet tea, looking out over a freshly manicured lawn, this is sort of God's way of saying, this is a job well done. There's a sense of satisfaction as God completes six days of creation and then on the seventh chooses to stop his work of creation and Sabbath. One author says that Sabbath can be translated four different ways. It can be translated as the word rest. It can be translated as the word stop. It can be translated as the word delight. And it can be translated as the word worship. And all of these things point and pull together to create this idea of Sabbath. Uh, Alan Ross said in his book, Creation and Blessing, that rest is not a word that refers to remedying exhaustion or after a tiring week of work. Rather, it describes the enjoyment of accomplishment the celebration of completion. So in other words, Sabbath rest, Genesis chapter 2, is when all is as it was intended to be. That's the idea. That God stops his creative work and is able to enjoy the satisfaction of a job well done because all was as it was intended to be. You remember from last week, days one through three, God created the good forms of creation. Days four through six, he then filled them with good things. And now day seven establishes how God relates to his perfect creation. He's not disengaged from creation. God doesn't take a nap. And sometimes I think about rest. The first thing that comes to my mind is nap. Uh, but we're so averse to this, right? I mean, think about kids in the room. Uh, what do you say when your parent says it's time for a nap? No, we have a four-year-old at our house, and I think like that's when rage is unleashed at the highest level is when we say it's nap time, and then it just explodes. We reject this kind of rest, it's, but this is not what God, God didn't zone out. God didn't go take a nap. He wasn't tired. He didn't go on vacation. Uh, you know, we think we need a vacation from our vacation sometimes. God didn't need that. He, he wasn't that, that way. But instead, this image of rest is God settling in to his newly created home, dwelling with his creation, and assuming his rightful place on the throne to rule the entire cosmos. Now, that's a lot wrapped up in one word. And you go, well, how do you get there? Well, the language of Genesis 1 actually confirms this understanding of rest, that God is actually exerting his rulership and reign over the entire cosmos creation. Uh, in fact, the words and the patterns that, we show, that, that are seen in Genesis 1 show up again for the Israelite people while they're wandering in the wilderness. Having been um, freed from slavery in Egypt, God led them across the Red Sea. God meets them at Mount Sinai. He gives them the Ten Commandments. And as they're wandering in the wilderness... They are instructed to develop and dedicate what's called a tabernacle. This was the place where God had designated for his presence 
to dwell with his people and from which he would exercise his rule as their God, as their king. And so this tabernacle was a, a big tent that was portable. Um, we used to do portable church here where we would set up and tear down and every week. Well, these guys were not just showing up on Sunday to set up, but they were carrying it with them through the wilderness for 40 years. And so they took the tabernacle as, as a place to say that God would dwell with his people and from which he would rule as their king. The exact same words and patterns in the design, development, and dedication of the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 39 and 40 show up in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Could it be that Genesis and the story of creation, while historical, yes, is also theological, pointing us to a bigger reality that the cosmos function as God's tabernacle or his temple? Because go figure, the same words and the same patterns would be used later in the life of Solomon when he, Solomon is tasked with this idea of building a temple for God, both to dwell with his creation and from which to exercise his rule as their king. So in the language of the Bible, creation, the entire cosmos, seems to be God's temple, his sanctuary, the place where he chooses to reside, to dwell with his creation, and the place from which he chooses to exercise his rule and reign. So like a politician who's re-elected into office shows up the night after the election into his office again, he just gets back to work. Right? He just goes and sits at his desk comfortably doing what he was doing before. God, in the same way, is assuming his rightful place as the governor over all things. This is what it is wrapped up in this word, rest. God is taking his place on the throne of the cosmos to rule everything. So Genesis 1 and 2 is not simply historical, it's also theological. It shapes our understanding of God. And this thinking about God actually was carried not just from the place of tabernacle in Exodus or from Solomon when he built his temple, but even in the time of Solomon's father, David, this idea was prevalent. David would write a psalm that reflected this reality. It's Psalm 29. I want to read part of it for you in verse uh, 9 and 10. This is a song of praise to God who spoke creation into being. It has a lot of repetition about God's voice and how things are uh, not only made but managed in creation uh, from the, 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 the lightning and thunderstorms all the way to how a deer is born. I mean, God has governance over all things by his voice. And then after listing all these ways that God does this, David writes in verses 9 and 10, in his temple... All cry glory, praise, honor to God in his temple. But you might remember the story of David that David, who wrote this psalm, he, he wanted to build a temple for God, but it never happened. But that task was then later given to his son Solomon, who would build a more permanent place for God to dwell and from which to reign and rule as king. And so, David, what's he talking about? If there is no temple, but he wants there to be one. Why would he say, in his temple, all cry glory? Could it be the idea is still there that the entire creation is God's sanctuary where he chooses to dwell with people and from which he rules and reigns as king? 
That's what it seems to be David might be talking about. He continues, verse 10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned king forever. What else do you do with the throne but sit and reign and rule? The place of God's governance over all creation is not a place of frenzy. Uh, It's like maybe the pagan myths of other gods. It's not a place of chaos. It's a throne of peace. And God is able to comfortably rest in, say, the control room of the cosmos, organizing and planning and sovereignly ruling and reigning over all things. So God rested on the seventh day because he had completed all of his work, days one through six. But more than just pointing to God's cosmic reign, God's rest is is also kind of an exclamation mark on his authority over the other ancient competing stories of creation attributed to pagan gods and other mythologies. Israel's neighbors were full of stories about how the world came to be and how the world was operating, all of them pointing to some God of their own creation from their minds uh, into story. So uh, God's saying it through Genesis 1 and 2 that he's different, better, more powerful, sovereign even over all of those. A great example of pagan gods would be the example of the pharaohs of Egypt who enslaved Israel for 400 years. And in their slavery, do you remember how they were treated? That they had a quota of, say, bricks to to make. And the more bricks they would make, you would think it would make the Pharaoh happier, but instead, Pharaoh, leading from a place of frenzy and chaos and competition with rival nations surrounding them, said, no, I need you to make more bricks In fact, I'm going to make you make so many more bricks that you're not going to be able to stand it. And when you can't stand it, then I'm going to make you make even more bricks. Because this is how paganism always works. The pagan religions, the mythologies, they always treat people uh, with no regard, no dignity. People are always stomped on by these pagans. This is how they saw themselves in relationship to what they believed to be the reasons for their existence. There was never rest for the weary. But God is different. God tells a completely different story. God comes from a completely different place. God is sovereign, pre-existent, eternal, over all. He's almighty. That's what that word, that name for God, Elohim, means, which is used here. God is eternal. And he puts a cap on his good creation with a blessed day of rest. A generous, a gracious gift from an all-powerful God who has no rivals, who's not in a hurry who created humanity with dignity and purpose. This is who our God is. Now, other ancient creation stories have depicted uh, pagan deities as resting. And so you might go, well, there's a conflict there. Like God says he rested. Well, these other pagan deities also said they rested. But if you go read these stories from these neighboring nations, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, uh, of their pagan deities, what happens in their stories is that their gods need rest because they're tired. Their deities need rest because they want to socialize with other deities who may be around. Or 
they need rest in preparation for a big battle that's coming where their, their authority is going to be challenged. And so you see two different concepts of rest happening in these ancient creation stories. One mythological, pagan, untrue story, which always shapes the deity in the form of humanity versus our God's story who shapes humanity in the form of the true deity. We can live from a place of rest because God has made us in his image. Genesis chapter 1, we were created in his image. This is the idea here. So the God of the Bible is not at all human-like, but rather, and we're going to talk about this in great detail next week as we dive back into day six of creation and talk about the image of God, humans are actually like God. We're created in his image. Which is why also his rest is not only a picture of his reign over the entire cosmos, his reign as authority over these false gods, but also God's rest is a pattern for our rhythms. Because we were made in his image, God's rest is a pattern for our rhythms. So last week we saw this repeated theme of God's creation being good. Maybe you recall from Genesis chapter 1, the, the refrain, and the Lord said, it was good. Then on finally the sixth day, it was not just good, it was very good indeed, right? You remember that, except we talked about how we, if we, we counter that with our current experience of the world, it's quite obvious that our experience is not so good. What happened? Well, we're going to get there when we get to Genesis chapter 3 and talk about how everything fell apart, right? So, but day 7 makes a distinct shift in this pattern. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we don't see where God says that day 7 is good. It's sort of an element that's missing there. What does that mean? Well, rather than the action of day seven being called good, rather than the product of creation being blessed as it was in days five and six, God blessed the seventh day itself. He says there in verse two, he blessed the seventh day. Blessed is another way to say that God made it happy. Uh, God intended day seven uh, experienced day seven at, for his own happiness and well-being, but then also intended that day to carry his happiness, his blessing into others who would also experience one out of every seven days being a day of rest. So you might have noticed that there was the absence of the it was good kind of formula pattern there. But there's also an absence of the and God said pattern. Days one through six all came to be because God spoke it into being. But that phrase doesn't exist here in Genesis chapter two, verses one through three, describing day seven. God's work ceases and it is replaced with God's Sabbath rest. This is a day for God to delight in his creation, to be satisfied with what is. And so what we could discern from that is that the rhythm of weekly Sabbath is designed and blessed for our enjoyment of life and the world God created. This is what God designed for us, a good world. Now, yes, it's been broken by sin. We're going to talk about that. But there is a way that we can live into the goodness of God by repeating the pattern that he set in place at creation, which is one of every seven days, resting, Sabbath rest, relying and depending on God who is in control 
over all things, constantly governing from his throne where he dwells with people, his creation, and then rules from in his temple. And so because of his rest, we find a pattern for our own lives that points us to goodness. But God didn't simply bless the seventh day. Look at what else he does. He calls it holy. God distinguishes the seventh day from all the other days by making it holy, which is a word that simply means he set it apart. He gave it a special purpose. It exists differently than the other days. So how do we see this? We see that day seven is an invitation to godliness. A day of rest is an invitation into a holy life, a life that's different, that's set apart from the rest of our world, that's distinguishable, where you can notice while the rest of the world is in a frenzy and chaos and going crazy, people of God are secure and confident and dependent and calm because God paved the way. He set the pattern in place and invited us into it. We can not only enjoy the world, but also we can experience Him in a new way, in a holy way, and experience holiness by keeping one day of the seven uh, Sabbath. This is a great uh, command, and you would think that God would just go ahead and command it right here on day seven. But actually, if you get into the Ten Commandments, which we studied earlier this year, you remember the fourth commandment is to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And then actually, most uh, the the most worded commandment of the Ten Commandments is the fourth commandment about keeping the Sabbath day. It's very important. And then even a hundred more times in the Old Testament, the command is given to keep the Sabbath day, to honor it by keeping it holy. And so we can see that there's something very good about, about relating to God in a way that keeps one day of seven where we can depend on Him. So it's a call. It's an invitation into holiness. It's to, while we're even in a world that's not good, the seventh day Sabbath is a way to live in a way that expresses our trust in God, who is the only one who can and will restore all things to the way they were supposed to be. One day we will be able to rest fully as God did on the seventh day when all things are as the way they should be. We'll experience it fully. For now, we just have an invitation to experience it partly. Or as Abraham Kuravilla said about day seven, it's an invitation to God's people to live in a world that runs by his precepts, that is geared for his priorities, and that engages his practices. So practicing the weekly Sabbath is how we reject the influence of the world. It's how we rebel against our sinful tendencies. It's how we distinguish ourselves as different from the world around us, that we are holy because of Jesus. And that we can defy the way things are out of dependence on God who will make things the way they should be again. This is how we practice Sabbath. So we've noticed a couple things missing from day seven uh, as we saw them in days one through six and how that actually makes an impact on our understanding of day seven. But there's one more pattern missing from day seven. Days one through six all ended with the same phrase, evening and morning. The blank day, the first day, the second day. There was evening and there was morning. The second day, there was evening and morning. The third day and so on and so on all the way through day six. But that's not here why? Well, could it be that 
This change in pattern is intentional to teach us something about God and his way of being in the world, the world he's created. Could it be that the absence of the evening and morning formula means that the seventh day is a day to remind us of something that is yet to be completed, something that's in our future, a hope that we have that's bigger than our current reality. This is where God shows us that his rest is a promise of our reward. God's rest is a promise of our future reward. So the fact that this is the only day missing the evening and morning formula indicates and also initiates a theme that the Bible carries throughout all the way to the end that God began creation by actively ruling and reigning, that he will create all things new again, actively ruling and reigning in the presence of his people for the full enjoyment of his people for eternity. This is what day seven points to. Curavilla said, the absence of the evening and morning formula means that day seven never concluded. The theology of Sabbath is thereby established that God's resting and reigning never ends. Day seven is an ongoing saga that's yet to be consummated. That's interesting, the way he talks about that, that points towards this future reality. It initiates this biblical theme that's carried all the way to the last page that God will rule and reign forever, and he's inviting us into that. Listen to what Colossians says in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. If you want to look it up, I'll just kind of paraphrase it for you, but essentially it says, don't let anyone judge you on these spiritual practices, what you might abstain from, whether food or drink, or how you keep the Sabbath day. Because these are just a shadow of what's to come. The substance is Christ. So when we talk about the Sabbath in day seven, that it's, a, it's about God's reign and that it's a, it's a pattern for our lives and that also it's a pointing us to a future reality, are we saying that if we can just get our heads right and practice the Sabbath good enough that we'll be okay? And the answer is no. You can't muster your way into a good relationship with God through practice of spiritual disciplines. But the substance is Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament, all the law and prophets. This is how he begins the Sermon on the Mount, right after the Beatitudes. He says that the, Pharise- the Pharisees, they, they want to add all this stuff to the law, but Jesus didn't come to take away the law. Instead, he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. All of us find our true identity and being in Jesus Christ alone. And so when you think about one day out of seven and how can I organize my life around this reality that God has established, what are we saying? We're saying that through Jesus Christ and faith in him, we can rest within our true identity as children of God, adopted into his family to live with him for eternity. He will dwell with us and we with him, and he will reign forever. I love how Jen Wilkin paints this picture of kind of the entire story of the Bible with the mantra, it is finished, because God resting from his work is sort of a way to say that creation is finished, right? We saw that it's complete. Here's what Jen Wilkins says. She says, the banner over the seventh day of creation, it is finished. The banner over the believer at the cross, 
as a new creation in Christ. It is finished. You remember what Jesus said from the cross, right? Tetelestai. It is finished. And the banner over the recreation of all things, it is finished. Each time we declare it's finished in our Sabbath observance, we affirm our allegiance to the kingdom that is to come, ordering our lives on earth as it is in heaven. Now, what a beautiful way to say that our, the way we live in relationship to Jesus, being adopted into God's family and following his pattern for our life, made in his image, a good life. This is a life that we live for eternity because of Jesus Christ alone. It's only because of Jesus that we can enjoy the rhythm of Sabbath rest and that we can enjoy the reward of an eternal reign with God. It's because of Jesus' completed work on the cross to pay the penalty for sin that we can cease our spiritual work for God's approval and receive the grace that he has for us that brings us into a relationship with him. You can never work your way into a relationship with God. God has already completed the work through Jesus Christ and extends his free gift of grace to those who would put faith and trust in him. We are plagued with restlessness. St. Augustine, I don't know, 1,800 years or so ago, said this, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. This is our spiritual reality, and God is offering us his eternal rest. So the first step to the life that God wants for you is to cease to stop trusting in your own efforts to reach God and trust in the finished work of Jesus who died on the cross as a payment for your sin. Because we can't live this life God intended without Jesus. He's the substance. He's what's true. He's what makes sense of the days of creation. And he was there. Trust Jesus today. We call this faith. Faith in Jesus. And it is the only way to salvation and true rest. Would you bow your heads? I want to lead you in a moment of prayer. And then we're going to have just one song of response before we end today. God, thank you that you have given us this picture of rest. Uh, a picture that, God, you, you are reigning and ruling over all things. I think today there's probably hearts that are rebellious, uh, that hearts that need to just lay down their own attempt to control and rule their own lives and say, okay, God, you are the ruler over all things. My true rest will be found when I let you rule my life. And I think about how Jesus referred to himself as a Lord, master. And God, I would just pray that people at Moberly Baptist Church today would say that Jesus is the master of their life, the Lord, the ruler of their life, that they would trust by faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross as a way to receive the free gift of salvation that only comes because of your grace through faith. Lord, help us rest today. God, you've given us this day uh, to be together, to delight in who you are, to worship you because of your 
reign and rule over all things. And so we're gathered here today, like beginning Sabbath. God, I pray that we would just continue living Sabbath the rest of this day, that we would find true rest because our hearts find rest in you. Lord, I pray that you would give people a next step to take, that we would see you at work around us and in us and trust you more and more each day. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.